road again Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may never see again And I can't wait to get on the road again Special thanks to Snoop Dogg and Matthew McConaughey for helping us out this morning. So we're talking about how do we get back on the road again. I wonder, have you ever uh, paved the way for someone? Maybe you had a friend, an acquaintance say, hey, would you introduce me to that person? Would you connect me with that person? And so you go to all the trouble, you, you send an email or you text them both together and you build up the, the friend or the acquaintance to, to this person they want to meet and then they don't do anything with it. Isn't that frustrating? I mean, you paved the way. Now, Rob Overholt, who's part of our executive pastor team, he was part of South Campus for, for many years, uh, says this. This is a little phrase I like of his. Paved roads are better than dirt roads, but only if you drive something down them. Now, if someone paves the way for us, we need to step into that moment. But see, the problem is sometimes we're the ones who have the opportunity that we don't step into. We're the ones who are resistant. It's almost like there's something in us sometimes that feels like we have to learn the hard way. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's where you're at. Or, or maybe you're in a friendship or you have someone in your family and you can see the right way and you're showing them the right way, but they don't seem to listen. Today, we're talking about getting on the right path, but sometimes we go off in our own direction and we reap the consequences. I have a goofy example of this. For years, we lived in Los Angeles, and we're both from Texas, my wife and I, but because we lived in Los Angeles and our kids started school later, like after Labor Day, we were able to fly to Hawaii and stay for like a week for the same price it would cost to fly to Texas. So don't tell my parents, but that's why we'd go to Hawaii and uh, instead of visit them that second time. And, and, and it was amazing. Like the kids literally, everybody had left for the summer. No one had yet come for, for the fall. And so literally my kids would be swimming in the little swimming pool all by themselves all week. It was amazing. And one time we went to Kauai. Now that's the Garden Island. If you've never been, it's amazing. And 10 years ago, uh, we went, and I have a picture of us, and, and you only post pictures online where people are smiling, right? Have you noticed that? Uh, what you won't see is the picture of us when we, everything fell apart just a few hours later. You see, I wanted to take the family to a beach that wasn't really on the map, and, and it was really just for locals. I'd heard about it from some of the folks that, uh, at our hotel, and so we ventured off the map towards this beach. Now, as we got closer and closer, the road got narrower and narrower, and then I see a sign that says parking, and it had an arrow, so I went right past that sign and turned left. But the sign had intended for us to turn before the sign. I suddenly realized that as I turned onto the beach. I'm driving my rental car on the, a beach in Kauai, which suddenly we got stuck. Now, my wife and kids, they don't weigh much, but I, I'm getting frustrated, and I say, just get out of the car. Everybody get out of the car, because surely that will be the weight lifted that we can drive off of the beach. 
And I could see some of the locals there laughing at me. They weren't laughing at my wife and kids. I'm the idiot that drove onto the beach in a rental car. And so then the next thing you know, I ended up uh, just digging a hole deeper and deeper and deeper. And so I, I see a, a few people that have been camping, and I went over there to see if they could help me, and they handed me a shovel. That's not what I meant. I meant, like, literally come over and help me, like, push the car out of the sand. And, you know, what am I supposed to do, dig the car out of the sand? Like, I tried my best, and it didn't work. So now I got these mats that we were going to lay on on the beach, and I thought maybe this will give us the friction. But instead, as I gunned the engine, it just tore them up, and we were deeper in the sand. I'm sweating, I'm frustrated, I'm disappointed, the kids are crying. It's just this a complete disaster in one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And then a kind Hawaiian guy sees us trapped. I have no idea if he was one of the people who had laughed at me earlier, but at this point I didn't care because he came to tow us out. Now, I always go with the cheapest rental car. I mean, again, my kids are small. They'll fit in almost anything. And so we didn't have a hitch, so he used the latch to the trunk to tow us out, which, by the way, uh, the rest of the trip, we couldn't close the trunk. We'd ruined it. But thank goodness for credit cards, which paid for the damage. But I see, I, I just, I wanted a new experience, and so I got off the road, and I experienced the consequences of it. And the same can be true of us spiritually, that when we go off of the road, the path that God is inviting us along to go his way, when we go our way, we will understandably experience the consequences of that. And we've been looking at these outlaws. We call these prophets outlaws because they would speak truth to power. They were going against the cultural grain, and oftentimes they were outcast and even imprisoned life threatened. And we looked over the last several weeks that not only were these outlaws calling their people to get back on the road with God, they were also pointing towards the day that God would come to rescue us. And so we looked at Moses and, and we saw how he freed the people from Egypt. And in that first Passover was pointing towards the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus, who would come and die for us. It's the shedding of his blood that would set us free. It was in looking at Isaiah that, that he would call out 2,700 years ago. He was calling his people to turn back to God, and yet they refused. And he also pointed towards the Messiah who would come, a suffering servant. Or 2,600 years ago, Jeremiah warned his people. No one listened, but he talked in the midst of their rebellion of this beautiful day when a new covenant would come through the one from the line of David, the Messiah. And we looked at Daniel. He shared his visions and dreams of the Son of Man and even gave a time frame for when the Messiah would come as he lived counterculturally, his life in danger because he wouldn't bow to the king. And what's remarkable is not only were they pointing towards the Messiah, but they were also written before the Messiah came. And if you've ever heard this idea that, well, the prophecies that were fulfilled in the scriptures, well, they were written after Jesus. That's why it matches. But we actually have scientific evidence, radiocarbon dating of scrolls that were written before by these prophets that foretold what happened exactly with Jesus. And so on this week, 
as we enter the Passion Week, that's what this week is called, we can look at the relationship that God invites us to have with him because Jesus came for us. Now here's the thing, God loves us so much he gives us freedom. And in the midst of that freedom, he gives us what we want, even if it's not what he wants for us. He doesn't force us to follow his way. And what we see with the people of Israel is, is they rejected God. And as a result, he warned them over and over and over. And eventually, as they turned from him, once again, he told them that there would be a, a famine of his word. Listen to this in Amos 8. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And so it happened. For 400 years, there were no prophets, no books written for the Hebrew scriptures. And the last of the prophets was a man named Malachi. His name means messenger. And I have kind of a special place in my heart for Malachi. My middle name is Michael, which is a derivative of that. And years ago, a friend of mine was doing a new version of the scriptures, and he asked other pastors and poets and artists to, to help kind of take on the persona of different people in the scriptures to, to actually retranslate. It's called The Voice, and he asked me to be Malachi. And so I actually helped write the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. I have proof. Here's the picture. There it is. I'm a contributing writer to the Bible. Actually, it's to The Voice, the version that we published just a few years ago. And, and I, as I read the story of Malachi, I, I came to really love it more and more, looking at it in the original language, and you can just see the angst of the people. In fact, the book of Malachi starts, and some of you read it this, this week as we did our bonus reading, but in the midst of that, it starts off with the people asking, God, why don't you love us? Things are bad right now. See, sometimes we equate our circumstances with God's feelings towards us completely unaware that our circumstances are a direct result of the decisions we make. And then sometimes we suffer because of the bad decisions of other people. And it doesn't mean God's not with us. In fact, it means he is with us and he mourns with us in the midst of the pain. And so Malachi reminds them, God does love you. He warned you. He was trying to keep you from these consequences. In fact, Malachi reminds them, of all the things that they had refused to do. And for hundreds of years, God had been warning through all these prophets. In fact, we talked about how if you read the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, you might get this wrong impression that God is angry, when in reality, he's a loving father who's trying to warn his people against going down a path of destruction. But even still, they kept going that way. And so Malachi reminds them, you have failed to take seriously your responsibilities at the temple. You've been unfaithful to God and even spoke out against following God. You've been unfaithful to the wives of your youth. You've stopped giving to God through the local storehouse as he had directed. But even in the midst of their rebellion in the book of Malachi, he reminds them God's promise, a promise that you and I can know. God says, return to me and I will return to you. God's loving kindness is always there for us. One of the things we need to understand about the scriptures is that we can understand more who God is, his character. 
how he interacted with the broken and the wicked and his people who failed and even did the right thing. We can see God's character even as we see ourselves in the story of others. But God describes in the book of Malachi their way back is to ask for forgiveness, to start doing the right thing out of gratitude for the love he's already given them, to renew their commitment to God, to their faith community, to their families, and even promises them that if they start giving again, then he will overwhelm them with blessing. Malachi 3.10 says it this way. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. See, one of the things I've learned in my own life is that God doesn't need my money, but I need to become generous so that money doesn't grab a hold of me. In the middle of all of this, there's still a picture of what's to come a picture of the Messiah. See, here's what's interesting. Sometimes if you're reading the prophets, it can be difficult because they're actually forth-telling. Prophecy means to tell the truth. And sometimes they're speaking about what's happening in this exact moment. But th- sometimes they're foretelling. They're talking about the day when the Messiah would come. But then sometimes they're talking even further out when the Messiah would come again. And it's hard to distinguish between the three time periods of time. But in this instance, he's talking about when the Messiah will come. Listen to this, Malachi 3, a promise. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Think about that. For 400 years after this, there was nothing. No prophet, nobody speaking on behalf of God. And yet in the midst of this, when people don't want to hear from God, he gives them what they want. But even still, as humans, when we turn back to him, he will come and lead us and guide us on the road again. Now, what's interesting about this is many times, if you know the story of the prophet Elijah, at the end of his life, he just continues up to heaven. He never actually dies. And so some people thought that this messenger would be Elijah coming back, that the Messiah would come following after the prophet Elijah. But what happens is, if you know the story, 400 years later, a baby was born just before Jesus. It was his cousin. His name was John the Baptist. There's this kind of cool little moment where both Mary is pregnant with Jesus And Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. And as they come close together, the baby in utero jumps for joy. And it's this kind of cool moment. And so anytime I see two pregnant women that come together, I always ask which baby jumped. And they don't think it's funny either. But it's always, to me, such a unique moment. Because John the Baptist was the messenger. Listen to what the scriptures tell us. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Sound familiar? He's quoting from the prophets. He acknowledges who he is. He's the fulfillment of that prophecy. 
John is a unique guy. Listen to this description. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, which, by the way, was not popular then either. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Mm -mm -mm. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. I mean, think about that. Put yourself in that place. For 400 years, God has been silent. And now there's this hairy-looking guy with camel hair clothes, eating locusts and honey, and he's calling people out. So people flock to the Jordan River to hear his message, a message of repentance and faith, to, to actually be baptized, to renew their commitment to God. Here's the story picked up in John chapter 1. As the crowds came to the shore of the Jordan River, Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had, sent, had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Think of what, what that statement means. John was older than his cousin Jesus, and yet he acknowledged this was not a normal child grown into a man. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a miracle worker. He has always been. He is God with us. Jesus continues paving the way. Now, not... For God to come, that was John the Baptist's role. He, he made a way for the Messiah, for God to walk among us. And his name is Jesus. But then Jesus makes a way for you and me to have a relationship with God. Listen to how he describes it in Matthew 7. He says to the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. You see, the world offers all sorts of temptations, so many options and paths that lead to destruction. Going our own way can be devastating, not just for us, but for those we love. But if we trust God, if we follow him along the path he has for us, it might be narrow and it might be bumpy and it might have its ups and downs, but he is with us along the way. What makes Jesus so much better of a driver in my life than me is that he knows the path. He's the one that paved the way. When I was a kid, I remember seeing this Bumper sticker, maybe you've seen it. It says, God is my co-pilot. And I'd always, you know, I was in the minivan. My parents had a Plymouth caravan and we'd drive up next to these people and I did not see God in the co-pilot seat. 
But in many ways, it's, it's a great analogy. I mean, it's better to have God as a co-pilot than not at all. But in reality, he's not wanting to just take a journey with us that we can go wherever we want. He's actually asking us, inviting us to let him take us on an adventure, that he has the steering wheel. And yes, maybe that reminds you of another country artist, right? Carrie Underwood, Jesus, take the wheel. But it's a beautiful sentiment because oftentimes we are the ones that drive ourselves into a ditch. We're the ones who, when we allow fear or temptation to take hold of us, that we go away from what God has for us. Because the way God has for us requires trust, requires allowing him to lead. One of my favorite passages of scripture in Proverbs 3 says this, trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. Listen for God's voice in everything you do, everywhere you go. He's the one who will keep you on track. There is a road, it's a narrow road that he invites you to let you experience the fullness of life. He created you on purpose and with a purpose. Let him lead you and guide you. It won't be easy, but he will always be with you. Maybe today is your day to get on the narrow road for the first time ever, to leave the pains of the past to the side, to trust God with your life in order that you can find new life. It is the season of resurrection after all, the spring, time for a new start. Listen to more from Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 says this, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God can make a way for you in me when we trust him. Now, many of you maybe had an experience similar to mine. I grew up in Texas, and my parents made me go to church. And I like to say that I came to faith in spite of that, and in part because of that. Let me explain. See, there is a worldwide religion known as Christianity. And for many of us, Christianity can become an identity, but not necessarily a way of life. Because we identify with what our parents raised us to be or even what our parents claim to be. But for some, Christianity is actually a nationality. I remember being in the Middle East and there are some that would refer to themselves as ethnic Christians. I remember one time talking to my grandfather and asking him if he was a Christian. He said, of course, I'm an American. In other words, I'm not a Muslim or a Buddhist, right? I'm from here. But see, he was missing the point. And frankly, I was missing the point. When I was younger, I was in something called Bible drill. Anyone ever do Bible drill? Okay, like two of us. Maybe that's a good thing. Uh, what they would do is at the very beginning of the Bible drill, they would say, swords at the ready. So we'd put our Bibles up. And then they'd call out a Bible verse. And you turn to it. And first one to step, point it out, step forward wins. Then you got to read it. And you memorize some passages of scripture. And at the time, I memorized all the books of the Bible in order. 
And then I also could tell you all sorts of facts about the Easter story, the Christmas story. I could win at any Bible trivia contest. See, it was the perfect thing for me. Church was boring until you added competition. (laughs) Suddenly I could take down all the other eight, nine, and 10-year-olds, right? But I was missing the point. Just knowing a lot about God doesn't mean you have a relationship with God. And what I saw happen to some of my friends as we grew up together, some began to wander away. It was almost as if they were rejecting the religion of Christianity, not realizing that they were missing out on the relationship with God that Jesus offers. It was as if they had been vaccinated to the truth rather than experience a relationship with the one who is truth. See, Jesus didn't come to start a worldwide religion. He came to offer a path to relationship with the creator of the universe. I can tell you there was a time when I came to know God personally. And it's so hard to describe what that's like and how different that is. But if you have a similar experience to me and you're not sure, is this is this really something I'm doing out of obligation or is this rooted in a relationship with God? You can know if you're more of a religious Christian or a Christ follower. Just a few questions. Can you point to a moment in your life when you asked God for forgiveness? Have you acknowledged to God that you need what Jesus did on the cross to count for you? Have you asked Jesus to lead you, to guide you, to become who you follow in every area of your life Are you asking them to help you die to yourself daily? And for some, they can point back to a moment when they were baptized. They were publicly declaring what was true in their heart. I wonder if you have come to the place where you realize that God loves you. He pursues you. He invites you into more than religion. He invites you into a relationship with him. I have a relationship with God that I can tell you he meets the deepest needs that no person could ever meet. It's out of gratitude that I have found I want to live a new life, not out of guilt or obligation. Now, if you're the type that worries about whether or not you have a relationship with God, you can know that you know God when when you experience the fruit of the Spirit and others can see that in your life. And the closer you get to God, the more you realize how much you need him. But here's the amazing thing. God gives each of us the opportunity to know him. But he does not force himself on us. There's this beautiful passage that says that you were put on this planet at this exact time in history so that you might find him. Listen to this, Acts chapter 17. God marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He put you at this exact time and in this exact place. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. This means that we cannot live vicariously through others. You can't live on the fumes of your parents' relationship with God or your grandparents' relationship with God. There are no spiritual grandchildren in the kingdom of God. Each of us has to decide, do we want to be adopted into our heavenly father's family? 
And when you say, yes, I need what you did to count for me, I need forgiveness, I want you to lead me, it's out of gratitude that that we then lead new lives. And one of the first steps is baptism. Today we're celebrating baptism at two o'clock at Barton Springs Pool, the free side. Now, some of you are already like, oh my gosh, that's so cold. You know, the, warm, the water is warmer than the air is right now. It's going to be fine. It'll be beautiful. But here's the thing. I want to invite you to come and cheer on those that are getting baptized. Or maybe you know that that is your next step. It symbolically represents dying to your old life and being raised to walk a new life. It symbolizes how you've been washed clean and now you are part of a new family. But when we get baptized, it... It does something in us. It's a moment that we can look back and we can remember. When we start to doubt, when we start to wander, we can remember, wait, no, no, I am a child of the King. God offers us a relationship with Him. And I want you to consider, do you have that relationship? Do you want that relationship? Because it can begin even in this moment. The band is going to play a song and you're going to see images of others getting baptized and if you've already been baptized it's a beautiful reminder of what's happened in your life but during the song I want you to consider what your next step may be for some of us it could be something from our past that we need to surrender maybe it's something that continues to tempt us that we need to ask God to take from us maybe it's reaching out to someone loving someone inviting someone into this community Whatever your next step is, allow this moment to be when God speaks as the band plays.